I heard about those guys, the paper boys. Gosh, you really don't want to fuck with them. The paper boy, yes, that's crazy. Welcome to No Cap Radio. Sit back, pour yourself a drink, and then enjoy this moment brought to you by the Paperboy Club. Let's rise and shine. Hi, Gio. Thank you so much for taking this time with us. I know you're very busy those days. I'm never too busy for you, Ozzy. <laughs> Thank you so I'm much. Happy to be here <laughs> on the show for sure. Okay. So you're the founder of Moom World. It's a very exciting project. You already know how bullish I feel about it. As far as you remember, it's very first NFT project to deliver so many things even before the mint, because even minted yet. You release an app, you get a series, crazy active community, who are all dogs, by the way, because you mail physical mailbox, some goodies, but we'll talk about all those during the show. Let's talk a little about you. You were a successful entrepreneur in the movie industry, and you're now coming into Web3. How this all started? May you maybe introduce yourself and tell us how you became an entrepreneur and you get to work in the movie industry? Yeah, definitely. I guess, how far back do you want me to go? Because it's a long story. So do we do the short version of the story or the longer version of the story? You tell me. I may be interested in the long version because I know it started when you were 17, I think. Yeah, it did. Okay, we'll go for the long version then. And I'll try to punctual with the details. So yeah, essentially, as you've noted, I've been an entrepreneur my entire life, really. I started even as a child. I had the privilege of playing with cameras both photo cameras, VHS cameras, etc. Because my grandfather, he had a dark room in his house. And at a very young age, it was like his hobby. He taught me how to develop film, probably when I was like six years old through eight years old. So I always had exposure to that. And I always found it very fascinating. So naturally, as a kid that was exposed to that, in my mind, I wanted to be actually, funny enough, a commercial director, because I used to find commercials on television to be sort of like a funny medium and a film director. So that was always like my vision, even at such a young age, right? So as technology was growing up around me, I grew up just outside of San Francisco, California, near Silicon Valley. Well, before Silicon Valley was really, I guess, what it is today. I don't come from like a rich family or anything like that. Both of my parents were hardworking people and they worked every day of their lives to make us supportive and sustainable life to the best that they could. I like to say that because... I think there's this notion or this thought that when you work in Hollywood or when you work on movies, of course, it has to be because someone in your family was doing that or you have to be rich. That's a very common thing that I hear. And people sometimes yeah, like, true. yeah, right. Like I'll tell my story and they'll be like, well, who's your dad or <laughs> whatever, right? My dad had nothing to do with any of that stuff. So growing up and being in high school, my friends were in bands. I was kind of like the nerdy guy that was around people in bands and was a skateboarder. And for fun, I would make videos and I would teach myself how to do this. And I would crack the software that was the editing software, which was very primitive at the time. But all of that is to say that those people were in bands and then other people became rappers. And I was like the guy that they would have make their videos. And these videos were at the time pretty inconsequential. Like who were they for? Who was watching them? I don't know, just a group of friends, right? But some of these people with the invention of MySpace started getting more visibility early social media, right? So we were making a lot more videos together. And I ended up in a film school for animation and special effects because my parents had sort of 
pressured me into going to college. So I figured out a way to go to college that was in something I was interested in, right? And I was in school, maybe five, six months. And I naturally found that I was basically capable of teaching that school very quickly, determined that it was kind of a waste of money and a waste of effort. But while this was happening, and the reason I tell this story is this is how my entrepreneurial journey started. I'll skip my first company and we'll go to my second company. I need to skip a little bit of this story. It'll take way too long. Yeah, sure. So one day received an email from a guy. His email said, and remember, there was no YouTube at this point or like YouTube was barely a thing. I think it was a MySpace film account. And he sent an email to me because my email address was listed. And he said, hey, nice to meet you. My name's so-and-so. And my favorite thing to do is watch shitty hip-hop music videos. And then he said, you make the best shitty hip-hop music videos for independent artists. Yeah, which was crazy. I was like, okay, yeah. I guess that's a compliment. You're calling my videos shitty, but also... And the last part of his email was... I see you're integrating special effects and visual effects. If you ever need any advice, I'm a visual effects artist and I would like to give you some advice. And so I was like, oh, okay, sure. Somebody's offering me advice and something that I'm doing. So anyhow, me and this person remained in contact and I would send him early videos of the artists that I was... Some of the artists were starting to become well-known. So he was like into it to get it first and to listen to it and see it first and give me critique and stuff. And he started telling me how to do certain things that I was lacking, right? So just all through email. And at one point, I ended up, I think I failed calculus at this private art film school. It was going to be like $25,000 to continue to retake it. And I didn't have that money. I didn't have any money, really. I spent all my money just to get enrolled in the first six months of the school. And I sent an email to him and I said, hey, man, I can't afford to continue on with my school right now. I'll probably have to go get a job or something. I go, but... Turns out that guy was a nine-time Emmy award-winning visual oh. effects artist. Yeah, so I like, did a little research, figured out who he was. And he was working on huge movies, and he was an insanely good artist, right? So after I failed that class, I sent him an email, and I said, hey, what are the chances that I could be your understudy and learn underneath you and help you with your work? And I would do it for free. I would work the longest. I'll work the hardest. I just want to know what you know. That's crazy inspiring. You learned from yourself at the beginning, then you follow some college and you also had a mentor. Correct. Yeah. And I didn't know what this guy looked like. I didn't know anything about this guy other than that he was a talented artist, right? And I didn't expect him to say anything to be about that, to be completely fair. And he replied two days later and he said, hey, I spoke to my producer at HBO. And if you can get to Los Angeles within 48 hours you have an unpaid internship working under me. And so, which was crazy. And I was like, is it real? I wonder if it's real. So I dropped out of my college and I went to this guy's home address because I didn't have any money. I was a pretty much broke college student or whatever. Drove to Los Angeles, met up with this person at his house. Like, I know this sounds kind of crazy. And he was a great guy. And we're still friends today. He's just like a normal talented artist. Now he's legendary in the world of visual effects, actually. So he brought me into the studio, introduced me to the producer at HBO, and we started working and I started learning. And I ate rice three meals a day with different sauces for about probably one full year as I was learning as an artist. At this time you worked for him. When did you start your first company? So that led me to starting my first company. So I worked on a couple movies there as an intern, and then I got hired 
full-time because they really liked what I was capable of. And I won an Emmy Honor Award on an HBO series by the time I was 19. Actually, at that point, I had probably worked on eight or nine movies. I was making friends with all the producers of all these different films, right? The visual effects producers of the films. And at a certain point, that particular company went out of business because of some issues. I don't remember what the issues were, but they went out of business. So I moved back to San Francisco, found a job at a couple of advertising agencies, directing some commercials work and doing visual effects work on commercials. I worked at a company that was owned by Lucasfilm for a couple months. And then I decided, you know what? I'm going to contact the producers that I know or that I met who were my friends and ask them if they can basically outsource work to me. Because I know that they always have more work than they have a solution for, right? And they were like, yeah, sure, we'll start sending you work. As an artist, I would take on this work. And then they would say, hey, can you take more? And I would say, yes. And they say, hey, can you take more? I kept saying yes. And they were happy with the work I was putting back. But what I was doing behind the scenes was I was actually training my friends to do the work too. Yeah, so... Oh, that's crazy. That's very inspiring. So, yeah, let's be open. This is going to be fully transparent. A couple of days ago, I signed NDA. Like yes. uh, some of your... So I know you, you are, but I keep the secret, God, because you're not fully docs right now. Effect production, you are very successful. I mean, you had a mentor, but student are, has surpassed the teacher. I would say in a different way. I don't think I've really surpassed him as an artist, but certainly as an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. So, and it's interesting, you did sign the NDA and you do know who I am now. So you've probably done some research. But what I was going to say about that was I started training my friends, right? And I turned it into a company that way. That was basically my first venture, my first serious venture. And it started as three guys in a room, became 12, became 25, became 50, became 120 people within the middle of the second year. Then by that point, all these producers knew what I was doing and they just accepted it. Oh, Geo has a company that does this visual effects work for movies and then he directs commercials and he makes media. And so that was my first venture. So it was a multi-million dollar company by the second year working on Hollywood films. Like I've worked on so many movies and it almost feels like it was a whole lifetime ago. I worked on Avengers, Captain America, Harry Potter, Thor, Iron Man, Titanic. That's what I was talking about actually. Let me get back a little. At first, you work for free. Is working for free until you become indispensable an advice that you would give to someone who want to follow your path? I always felt that it was the right way to do, to first prove that you can do show your talent by working a little for free. I think so, but I also think that there's a balance between working for free and being taken advantage of. Personally, I'm incredibly thankful for the fact that I made that decision because my entire life is in a different place than it would be if I didn't work for free, right? But I didn't feel like I was being taken advantage of because I was in a room with people that I would never, ever have had the opportunity to be in if I didn't come in and work for free, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And I was learning things that some people spent an entire college education and years of their lives learning, and there I was with some of the best people in the world being taught it. So for me, I mean, of course I was working for free for like eight months or whatever it was, but I didn't ever feel like I was being taken advantage of. If anything, I was stepping into that office every day and was like, I can't believe I'm here. Um, yes. So 
my advice to people who are looking to get into something by working for free is there's two sides to it. If you have something to learn and you have something to prove, there's nothing wrong with working for free so as long as you don't feel like you're being taken advantage of. Like you have to get something from it as well, right? And oftentimes that can be connections, that can be relationships. There's a lot of things you can gain other than money that are like long-term things. But then my second piece of advice is if you're working for somebody for free who doesn't respect you, then you're probably in the wrong place and you shouldn't be working for free. I don't typically like to ask people to work for free, to be completely honest, but I do think that there's a value to it if the person is new to an industry or really trying to prove themselves in a place they otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity. Yes, in my opinion, I shouldn't share my opinion here, but knowledge is priceless in my opinion. And when you learn something, you you still get something uh, valuable, I do think. But uh, that, I, agree. I wanted to ask you this question because it's very inspiring story. Yeah, so then you came into Web3, you very successful entrepreneur, very well established. What led you to Web3? A lot of people came here because of the trading opportunities it offered, but what motivated you and interested you in Web3? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's probably worth saying that I had an entire other company in between that movie company. Oh, yeah, sure. I exited that company back in 2014 and started a marketing company that built brands. So I've had a brand growth company that would build and help scale businesses and help them go from like $1 million a year to three, five, 10, 15, 30 million. And my team would come in and we would do all the work to help them scale their brand and grow it from creative ideas to the actual technical implementations to the marketing. Uh, and I had that company for eight years. And then this is why it's important about Web3 because I actually left that company, which was very successful, to be a part of Web3. And you asked me why I decided to come into Web3. Is that the question? It was, yes. Yeah. Well, okay. So having worked on lots of movies and having built lots of brands, I have accumulated a lot of knowledge right, about these things. And I've participated in making multiple businesses, helping multiple businesses grow, working on films and advertisements and all of these things but and i've said this before like when you're working on a movie like harry potter even if you're an incredibly talented artist you're always just coloring inside someone else's coloring book right yeah i get it yes i, I mean i see what you yeah everyone knows what harry potter looks like everybody knows what harry potter is going to do <laughs> right like it's a book it's adapted and then you as the artist are putting your talent forward to create the best visual possible to represent harry potter on screen, which is amazing, but I'm not saying it's not the coolest job ever. I'm just saying like, for me, my original dream was to create something original and something so large and profound. My biggest childhood idol was George Lucas. And I always said to myself, I want to be able to create something brand new that people love the same way that I loved his creations. So working on some Harry Potters is not your invention. It feels like a playing in uh, someone else's field, but you still put your talent in, into it. Definitely, you... definitely. Those artists are some of the most talented people and artists in the world, no doubt. It's just my aspirations were different, right? And as someone who, with my marketing agency, my company before Moom, I was in, I was collecting one-of-one one NFTs in artwork because I had a lot of friends that were artists and they're like, oh yeah, NFTs, this is the cool thing right now. And so I got involved and I started buying artwork and a couple different PFP collections and stuff here and there. 
and I was already into crypto even before that, right? Like I was trading some crypto, teaching myself about crypto all through 2020. I was like learning crypto trading and futures and all this stuff, right? Just teaching myself. But I saw what I saw in Web3 is I saw a desire for creativity. I saw people appreciating creativity. I saw people appreciating maybe, how do I explain, like counterculture creativity, creativity outside of the mainstream channels that are providing you with entertainment and artwork and things. And I actually came up with the idea for Moom in like 2015 or 2016. I just showed someone a file today of the logo that said last modified six years ago. Back in the days, it was uh, already a container. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was. So I wanted to create, I wanted to turn Moom into a brand back in like 2016. There's a story about how came the idea of a container. I think it was a, during <laughs> a trip in China, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Did you want me to tell that story? Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a nice it's story. To, it's up yeah. to you, man. But yes, yeah, I can tell that story. But the reason I came into Web3 was two reasons, actually. It was because I saw people who appreciate creativity and who are paying for creativity. And of course, there are people who are just paying to make a flip and trade. I'm not saying that. Of course, that is part of the ecosystem. But I also saw people being taken advantage of. And I saw founders, if they can call themselves that, in this space, taking advantage of people and rug pulls and all these other terminologies. I was like, wow, why? If people are dedicating their time and their money to this stuff, why are people taking advantage of them? I was like, this is interesting because I want to bring a creative intellectual property to the world in a non-traditional way. I want to do it with the power of decentralization where I can work with people all across the world. And I want to make it for them. I want them to feel like they're a part of it. And I think that's why a lot of people care about our project. And I want to be, I'm coming into this space as a serious founder who cares about long-term vision, who cares about, who understands the relationship between the customer and the product. And so I think that in Web3, there's an opportunity for people who are honest and for people who mean well. And I want our community to be those people. So that's yeah. why I entered Web3. That's very interesting because indeed it feels like the community, and we'll talk about the community later on, it feels that like the community are very central place in the Moon Project. So yeah, I just wanted to get back just in a minute to this story about your trip in China because uh, when I discovered your project, I was wondering what this container made in, in this story. And I thought at first that it was just a place to hide for the resistant. We'll talk about the story for the resistant to hide. But in fact, your idea or your vision of this was way more deep and poetic. Because if I'm not wrong, you saw a port with a shipping container on boats on the sea, and you were wondering what was inside. And you imagined that a whole world was on those containers, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And not only that, okay, so I was on a trip in China. This is back in 2014, I think. 2013 or, no, probably 2014, 2015. Whatever, the year is irrelevant. Definitely 2014. <laughs> uh, and I was with a client of mine who was a world-famous furniture designer. I was building, helping him build a new brand, a new label of his brand. And I had to go to one of their facilities in China. And he took me there as well as one of my colleagues. And 
at the end of the trip. Anyway, I saw a lot of eye-opening things during that trip. Some things very nice, some things very terrible. But at the end of the trip, I was sitting in front of the port of Hong Kong, waiting for a layover. Like I had like hours between needing to be at the airport in Hong Kong or something. So I was just hanging out there. I was looking at these shipping containers. At the port of Hong Kong, for as far as the human eye can see on the ocean, all there is is boats and containers. Like you literally can't see beyond them. That's how many there are. There must be over 10,000. I would assume. I can imagine, yes. Yeah, it's pretty insane. And in that moment, that whole trip was an embodiment for me. So this is how everything in the whole world is made. And as you can imagine, we're a big world, right? And there's a lot of a lot of human effort goes into making everything in the world, even with some of the factories that I went to, right? Like I went to a factory that had 20,000 workers in it. And so just seeing that with your own eyes is very eye-opening. But I was sitting there, and as you mentioned... I was looking at these containers and kind of just lost in thought, looking at the view. And the first thing I thought was like, holy shit, this is how everything's made. Almost everything that I ever use or buy will have come from one of these containers or been inside one of these containers. Or at the very least, the parts and components that make all the things that I own have probably been inside of a shipping container at one point. I looked at my friend next to me. And I just remember saying something silly like, bro, can you imagine if all of those containers had monsters living inside of them? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know where I came up with that. And I was like, hopefully they would be friendly. And then we just kind of laughed about it. And that was just an, a fleeing thought. Uh, and then I was on the airplane, which is like a 14-hour flight or something. And I started scribbling on airplane napkins and drawing pictures of shipping container monsters or like creatures in the container. And I actually ended up drawing the logo on that flight. At this point, did you already imagine the story of the series? No. Or it, or it no. was just a logo? No, it was just the concept of a creature being alive in a container. And then I'm really bad at drawing, actually. I'm great as an artist, but I'm terrible at, at drawing. <laughs> it's, uh, it's probably my weakest skill. But I was thinking to myself, because I'm always thinking about building brands, right? Like that, this is always my thought process. How do I build a brand? How do I make something interesting to share? And even on that napkin, I was like, okay, I can draw a rectangle. That's a shipping container. Then what would the eyes look like? What would the arms look like? And the way I came up with the logo was I was thinking about myself in middle school and how I used to draw this, the S logo, like the Stussy S or the Super S or whatever you want to call it. Are you familiar with that? I don't think so. I'm familiar with the Super S. I think you would be if you saw it. I feel like you'd know exactly what it is if you saw it. Let me um, Google this. Stussy S drawing or something. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I see. Okay, Super so like... Super S, yes. And what's interesting, right, is where did you grow up? The suburb of the Furries. Okay. And do you remember ever seeing those drawn anywhere? It's familiar, but I can't remember seeing this anywhere. Okay. Well, everyone I knew and anyone I tell the story to in the United States... Maybe it's a U.S. thing. I'm not sure. But basically, kids would draw this on their binders in class. Like, for no reason. They would sketch it. They would carve it into their desks. They would draw it on their binders. Nobody knows what it means. Nobody knows where it came from. But everyone knows how to draw it, even if you're not a talented artist. So, yes, sure. So in my mind, I was like, how do I make a brand that every kid in the world can draw the logo of? That oh. was, yeah, like, no matter how talented you are or how untalented you are, What's a logo that everyone in the world could recognize that everyone in the world could draw? This was the thought process I was making on this napkin. So I was like, oh, eyes could be zeros. And then I was thinking, oh, claws, like it's a monster in there. 
initially I just had the container without a body and I wrote M00M on it and I made the M were like claws to me because I, I suck at drawing, right? And the zeros were the eyes. And then I also thought, oh, well, when you type it, it kind of looks cool. It kind of almost looks like an old school emoji. And I was like, okay, everyone can draw this. So the name of the company is M00M or Moom. However people want to say it, but truly what it is, is it's a monster with claws. It's a monster eye with claws. A creature. And that was my thought process behind it because I'm like, everyone in the world can draw this. That means that, and I can put this on anything. I can put this on a laptop. I can put this on a coffee cup and instantly that coffee cup becomes a monster. Okay. As the podcast is uncensored and uh, as I don't know who will listen to this, I, uh, but I can tell that I'm pretty sure I uh, drew this logo over a wall somewhere. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> I'm, there you I'm go. Pretty sure. Yes, with this logo comes serious the story because M00M Moom is actually one of the main character of the series. Would you like to give an introduction, some kind of pitch of the series? Yeah, sure. Well, so when I started to create this in Web3, even before Web3, I wanted to tell a story. Originally, I was like, oh, what if I make a movie or what if I make an animated show back in 2016? That was where it started. That's where the idea started. I was sitting on a beach on vacation back in 2016, actually. And I had my notebook and I started just writing a story just that came to mind. Uh, and the story was is what the story is today. I didn't change the story. I wrote the first four chapters of what is the audio series. I wrote that in 2016. And the concept is this. It, the year is, is 2073. And we're kind of living in a post-AI brain implant society where the majority of planet Earth installed what Elon Musk's Neuralink is in their heads, like a computer chip in their heads gave them like superhuman abilities. And for a while, it was good. For a while, it helped humanity. And it helped with equality and opportunities and education because everyone could just like matrix download information into their heads. The actual device from the corporation that made it had ulterior motives. And once 85% of the global population was chipped in the year 2073, it backfired. And those people basically became slaves, if you will, almost like passive slaves of the system that is this corporate technocracy. And I imagined people, certain parts of the population would rebel against this technology. They wouldn't want to, to have this technology. In fact, when I was on this vacation, I was working at my other company at such a high level, working so hard that... I had a client that was being very demanding and really bothering me. And <laughs> I mean, it was a big client of ours. And I was like, you know what? On my vacation, I'm going to turn my phone off because this person is like connected to my head. And I'm never the person that turns his phone off. I'm always online. But for two weeks, I shut my phone off and I was like, nobody's going to reach me. I don't care. And so I think that had some of the inspiration of like, okay, some people are not going to want this technology in their head, right? They're going to want to be left alone. And I imagined it to be like 15% of the world would probably be against it. But these people formed the unspoken resistance is what I call it, because they just kind of agree that this wasn't for them. This microchip in the brain, which is called the fate clarity. That's the name of it. Fate clarity. Fate is the corporation F8 that makes it. And they had to hide from it because what really happened is very bad organization. And they actually chased down the people who are unchipped to chip them to get everyone to conform. And so these people had to like hide. They had to move off grid. Some of them moved into nature and, hi and are in hiding. And a lot of them moved to the shipping ports 
and use shipping container homes at the ports to hide in and sort of live off the grid because traditionally in this storyline, no one really cares about what's happening at the shipping ports. It's just all commerce transacting to keep the chipped society moving forward. So it was kind of like low security, not a big deal. And people were living in these ports with no money, no resources, and just the unspoken resistance is that they were living and helping each other out. Yeah. I love the story. People may not know, but we are the June the 15th today, and you have already nine episodes released so far on uh, all platforms. I like to watch them on YouTube, and it's easily find those episodes on YouTube by writing, searching M00M, because Moom actually <laughs> is written M00M and not M double O M. I the original series and a, a very deep dystopia. You have a very interesting position here because in one end uh, the dystopia remains possible and yeah. it's something I couldn't imagine back in 2016 that things could get so far. Also because uh, the time frame you, you choose is very close. It's 2073. It's something our children will live to see. Yeah. Many questions are put to the audience in this story. From my point of view, yeah, I'm passionate about this story. From my point of view, the, the story is not totally binary. In fact, first, it's both very funny and very dark. We have those main characters, Gold Star, Kevin, and Moom. This creature, really funny. I love really so. loud, especially when uh, Kevin speaks. And also, you have some very dark and terrifying moments. Like, I think it's in episode three when my worker in the port uh, meets a fate agent. It's a very dark scene. Yeah. Yeah. I can't help myself to question myself about this. I always felt that maybe that liberty is the most precious thing in the world. And I think it's Benjamin Franklin, who said those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety, yeah. and you talked about the security a couple of minutes ago, deserve neither liberty nor security. And I think someone had, uh, and will eventually lose both. And it may be one uh, question put to the audience here. It's one of the questions I'm asking myself. Things are not quite so simple because the clarity shift offers to the shipped people comfort, an easy life, universal knowledge. And I said a couple of minutes ago that knowledge from my point of view is priceless. And I can't help myself to think about it. How long would I resist to get the chip? I really don't know. Maybe two days, three days, one month. You I really think that's don't it? Know. I don't know myself. Would I accept this? From your point of view, are the chipped People, I don't talk about the fate agent here. Of course, they are the bad guys, but are the cheap people the bad guys of the story or just some innocent victim? I think it's probably a bit of both. I don't think that every person... Well, first of all, the majority of the people who are chipped are innocent people who are just byproducts of the chip at this point. But the people yes. that are working at the fate corporation, are they all bad guys? I don't think that they're like necessarily an evil empire i think there are people who make bad decisions every day who aren't bad people necessarily and i think that bad is very subjective right what i like about what you highlighted is well first of all this was written in the first four chapters four or five were written in 2016 before some changes in our world occurred and i like that you've noted that there's some very like dark things that get met with humor because one of the things that i try to do is understand the relationship of light versus dark and the confliction of those things because i think you can't really know 
what darkness is without light. And you can't really know what lightness is without darkness. Oh, right? yes, of course, yes. Yeah, so I tried to make this series funny and enjoyable because I don't want it to be too heavy. But also, if there are moments that people can stop and think about these concepts, then I think it's a little more intelligent than a lot of the other media people are consuming. The subject is far too deep from a philosophical point of view, not to draw a parallel with uh, events maybe higher in real life. Is mass surveillance something you that worries you to the future? Well, I think we're already victims of mass surveillance. I think that we've had these devices in our hands for, what, the last 10 years now? And I think that they know many, many things about us and that they've classified us into different buckets of data. And we, just like the people in this series, the chipped people, have accepted this, right? We all just walk around with a phone and we accept it. Absolutely, yes. That's what I was thinking. Uh, I made um, I thought about uh, those cell phones, yes, indeed. We have accepted that, right? And if you look at our relationship with our phones even, and I'm not even going to go to some of the darker current world situations that we could compare this to. Let's just use phones, which is something that everyone will agree on, because I, I don't need to inspire any form of controversy. I don't mean to do that. But if you look at phones and the amount of time we spend with our faces in them and the amount of time they occupy and the amount of time they steal from the people you love and the people who love you, it's actually nothing short of fucking incredible. Yeah, it's that's terrible. Word. Yes. Yeah. So I think in a sense we are already chipped. Do I think we will become more chipped in the future? Absolutely. And I think that majority of people are just going to accept it and some won't. Yes, I thought about it yesterday in France. The Senate that has voted, uh, I think it was yesterday. I saw it yesterday, but I'm not sure of the date, maybe the day before, for the possibility of using facial recognition in trade surveillance cameras. Yeah. And the argument for the security, the safety, yeah, talk yeah, about right. security. Indeed, it's always this. I'm not here to share my thoughts about this. Even if I think it's crazy and, yeah. and useless. But in your story, indeed, it seems to be the appeal of new technology that seems to be taking over and push people to accept the chip. The chip is actually something that puts some nanobots in people's brain. That's absolutely crazy. I think it's only as crazy as until 20 years from now. <laughs> I don't think yes. we're that far away. I mean, people are talking about it already. If you can imagine it in science fiction, you can imagine there's somebody in a laboratory working on it right now. Another question I was asking myself about uh, this. I uh, focus on the clarity uh, chip in, in the... But maybe we can talk about uh, about the, the main character. You know, the root of the word addiction comes from addictere, which refers to the notion of depth. From this point of view... In the case of heavy addiction, we speak in French, at least we speak about uh, depth to the product. I have the impression that it is more or less the same thing. Clarity offers a new, a beautiful vision of the world. It changes the vision of the world. It changes the sensation, the taste. People in the right. story eat the insect porridge and it feels like a very good food. We may drink dirty water and feel the beautifulest wine in the other end in exchange. And that's the depth, the, the chipped, the chip. People become the eyes and the ear of the fate agent. Is clarity for you like a drug, like a technology that everyone wants to get? Or 
just a tool to control people. Because at this point in the story, the fate agent tried to force resistance to get... And there, there's a scene that describes this yeah. fate agent that force want to force Kevin to get the chip. I think it's in episode two or three. Well, okay. So, yes, from a standpoint of, you know, the augmented reality that the chip gives you and the benefits of the chip were the initial selling points of the chip, right? So, but our story basically starts in the year 2073 when 85% of the global population was already chipped, right? So, initially, clarity was something that people wanted. It was a technology that people desired, right? And most people willingly accepted the chip and then thereafter at a certain point when it switched over essentially and most people already had it they started forcing others to get it and that was kind of the cause of many uprisings in society from those who didn't want to get the chip so some people were forcefully indoctrinated or whatever you want to call it into the chip and then some went into hiding and some abstained from the chip but originally it promised great things for the world and it did deliver on some of those promises, in fact. But at a certain point, people became useless from the chip. They just work for the system, which is the fake corporation. I have a bunch of questions about the theory, not going to lie. I don't want uh, to spoil it all. I wonder, for example, where uh, Moom comes from. Do you have I theories would... on it? Yes, I would guess that uh, Moom is an update to clarity that grows its own consciousness and found his own camp, uh, choose the right one, choose to join the resistance. I don't know, but I don't know. Yeah. There is something absolutely amazing also about the series, because it's, first of all, an audio series. It's that the voice actors are actually recruited from the community, and it works very well. I mean, voice actors are great. Is there a chance for the people in the audience that are listening to us to become a voice actor in the series? Yeah, and absolutely. if they fail to... How should they start? How do, would they have a chance to well, get this position? If you follow us on Twitter at M00M underscore world, we announce when we're doing open voice auditions for each episode. And it's usually about one month in advance of the particular episode coming out. And we also do it in our contained Twitter groups, which are private Twitter groups that you can find your way into the resistance through by knowing someone like yourself, for example. My intention with the brand when I created this, another part of why I went into Web3, is I want to inspire millions of people. And my actual goal is to get millions of people working together on something great. And I use the audio series as the first way to do that. It's kind of like the foundation for the underlying foundation of what this brand and what this property becomes, right? And I think that the two things everyone on earth has is a phone at this point, a phone and a voice. And so along the same logic, I like to think where how I invented the logo. What is something that anyone can do? Or at least the majority of people who want to do it can do it. And funny enough, even a certain voice on the series, one of the actresses, she was interested, but she was very shy and she was very not confident in her voice. I was like, listen, as a director, I can help you get there and we can make it sound good. And if it doesn't, no stress. We don't have to use it, but let's at least try it together. And we got on a Discord call, whatever it was, whatever technology platform it was. 
and we walked through it together, and she became a voice in this show. So anyone who wants to become a voice just has to pay attention to those open voice casting calls. And yeah, so I mean, that's the spirit of what we're building. And I think in the near future, I shouldn't say think, I know, in the near future, it's going to become far more than just contributing voices and ideas, because we're even having people vote on what happens in the episodes, right? So yes, people, that's people right. who are in the community. Yeah. So I want people to exercise their creativity. I want people to be inspired. To me, the fact that we're having this conversation and the fact that a couple thousand people care about the story itself is far cooler to me than anything I've ever worked on. It's far more inspiring. To be honest, what you just told is exactly the reason why I didn't get to the audition. I just couldn't dare. <laughs> oh, <laughs> couldn't man. Dare. But no, maybe uh, one day I'll do the audition if I have the chance. You built a very active, dedicated community and uh, offer some opportunity to, to the community members. We just talk about the voice actor opportunity in this series, but the community members are taking an active part in the construction of the project, especially the series. I think it was on the last uh, Twitter space, and we may talk also about the Twitter space, that 11th episode will be fully written by a community member. That's correct. Yeah, his name is Safir. And what he was doing, yeah, so, so episode 11 is entirely written by a community member with edits and oversight from myself, right? And essentially, so this was a community member who had started publishing in our original app and in Twitter and DMing us side storylines. I mean, the guy was sending me like 20-page stories that he wrote about new characters and new environments just based on our lore, based on our world, right? And I started getting these things from him. And I was like, all right, I really need to read this stuff because I promise everyone that I do my best to read everything they send me, even though I'm like super busy, right? And one day I had a coffee and some spare time and I started reading one of the things he sent. And I was like, wow, this is really, really good. Like, like, I was impressed. It made me smile so much. And I replied back to him. And I was like, so where do you see this going? He's like, oh, I don't know. I just want to write fan fiction about it and write my own stories and expand certain areas. And he's like, can I just get your opinion on certain things that happen in the universe so it's correct? And I said, yeah, of course. And then I read a couple more things. And I said, hey, why don't we get on a phone call? I'd love to meet you. And I met the gentleman. He's a professional writer at an advertising agency, actually in the United Kingdom, I believe. And I said to him, I said, listen, right, I'm going to be honest with you. The biggest threat for me right now would be for you to lose your passion because your fan fiction is going somewhere. I don't want you to stop writing. So what if instead of writing fan fiction, we write an episode together of the official series? And... He was really excited. Yes, that's a cool way to be part of the of his story because what is going on is here here's sci-fi empire of tomorrow, right? Yeah. How would you describe your community and how it works? Because you choose not to use uh, Discord. You have an app already launched on iOS and uh, those containers that are um, Twitter group chats. That's an alternative to whitelist, but people on, in those group chat are whitelisted. How do yep. you describe the community, how it works? Someone may have a chance to join a container, be whitelisted or, or join the, the community. Definitely. Well, so some alpha, <laughs> I'll start with some alpha, I guess. We're going to be making a few changes, Ozzy. Oh, we may be, thanks for the alpha. 
Yeah, 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 you're getting the alpha first. Although by the time this comes out, I don't know when this will come out. Maybe, it w- But we might make some changes about the whitelisting process as well as some of the communications process. But when we started it, the reason that I built an app, the app is actually called the BBS, which in our story, the BBS is the tool resistance members use to communicate. And so in my mind, I was like, how cool would it be to really build the BBS and have that be the home of the community, the home of where in the future we assign actual paid contract job roles, the home of where people can communicate safely without being on social media, without someone prying over their data. So I wanted to create that and make that the home of the community. So we put a lot of effort into that. It's out on iOS. The Android, a little bit more alpha, the Android version is almost done. That's going to be coming out shortly here. But to get involved in our community, one of the things that I wanted to do differently with Web3, you don't need to own an NFT to be respected in our group. You don't need to own anything in order to enjoy the majority of the things that we create. Now, if at a certain meaning, like you're welcome to come in and chat with us on our platform, on our app, you're welcome to talk to us on Twitter to get to know the other community members and get what we call contained, which is kind of like a little bit of a private track, secret track in these group chats. Everyone's welcome to do that. Of course, it'll get more exclusive as time goes on because what's going to happen with the NFTs is the NFTs basically all of the internal alpha and project decisions is going to get locked off. Voting on outcomes of episodes, the first opportunities to be in episodes are all going to go to holders, right? That doesn't mean that you're not a respected person as a listener, as someone who cares about the project. The spirit of it should always be everyone is respected and welcome. So when we create products in the future, we're going to maintain that mentality because I think it's very important. I'm trying to inspire millions of people, not just 7,000 people, which our NFT collection is 7,777. I do imagine those 7,777 people as being, call it like the resistance, like they are the closest to the brand of what's going on, right? Yes, and it will work like DAO. In a sense, yes, but we don't currently have a plan for on-chain voting. We have different voting mechanisms that will facilitate through our app, right? Like it can still be verified that you hold, but it's not going to be like a true DAO or DAO. For various reasons. I did a lot of research on those business models compared to the type of business model that I have, and I opted to not do that. But that being said, participation and sculpting from the community and the holders is like, is the point. And in order to inspire millions of people and scale far beyond the current size of Web3, we have to create products and experiences that people all around the world can enjoy. And the audio series is the initial, and in the coming weeks, you're going to start to find there's more things like that. That everyone can can enjoy. I can't wait. And you're surrounded with a very experienced team. Also, would you like to introduce your team? You work with uh, great people. Blam, I think about Blam, Bajili, the Lion of Web Three. People may know Brian, Microsoft, John Yu recently. Yep. Do you want to introduce your team and tell us how you choose those people and how you get to know them? Yeah, absolutely. The team, essentially, so. Blam, who's my co-founder, I take the title founder because I came up with the idea, but co-founder, founder, it's the same. We, we treat each other with equal respect in that regard. He is somebody that was the art director at my past two companies. I've worked with Blam for the past 13 years now, and he has always been the person that helps me get my visions on paper and turn my visions into reality. And in turn, I help him turn his visions into reality. And we have a very good partnership creatively, and that has been... So that was the first person that was helping me with Moom. 
Like, he and I basically created Moom, right? And then he's an award-winning animator. He's an animator, concept artist, 3D modeler, illustrator. He knows how to code. Like, <laughs> he's got a lot of talent, right? And he is my partner, and we are, we're creating this Moom universe, the foundations of it together. Then we also have the Lion of Web3, a.k.a. Benji, which was his original name online. So I always call him Benji. Yeah, He's the voice actor of the Moom character, so. Yeah, it's really funny because the way he came about, actually one of the first people to ever listen to our series is our project manager. I didn't know this guy. He found us totally randomly. His name's Brian Says Grow. And Brian was like an early fan of the first, I think, two episodes. First episode must have been just the first episode. And I made a tweet that was like, anyone know anybody with a nice British accent? Because for some reason, I always imagined the shipping container creature being British. I don't know why. And he was like, oh, yeah, I know this guy. He's the director of communications at Killer Bears. And I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. He introduced me. And I was like, yeah, dude, I have this role where I'm looking for somebody with a great voice. And I heard his voice. I was like, oh, my God, your voice is perfect. Are you down to be the voice of this character? Right. And he just started off as the voice of the character as he was the director of communications for Killer Bears. We were talking about the project. We would just talk about it. And more and more, I was like, oh, man, maybe I need someone with your skill set to help get this thing to the next level. So I flew him to our office in Miami just to get to know him more face to face because I was had a good relationship with him over the phone and on video chats and stuff. And I showed him the true plan of what Moom is set to be. Like I showed him everything. And he was like, this is amazing. I want to be involved on this project. So he generously decided to sort of jump ship and work with us. That's after, that, after seeing it. That's crazy. Basically, you recruited uh, Benji, the Lion of Webtree, yep. director of communication of Killer Bears. His accent. Because of his accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At first, I didn't know anything about him other than his voice. He's a very experienced person in Webtree. Yes. And you recruited also within the community some container operator who are, that's like moderate position, right? Yeah, essentially. How many operators are there so far? Now, well, so I kind of consider operators people who have actually completely filled their container. And what that means, just for everybody listening, we have these Twitter group chats. These are the private sort of Twitter group chats. You can only have 75 people in a Twitter group chat. And the people that moderate that group chat and invite people are basically, we call them operators, which is a term from our series. And what I consider... An operator is somebody that's actually filled their container because not all of those mods or operators have filled their container yet. So I would say we have a total of 21 containers right now. And of those, there are probably about 12 operators that have filled their containers and keep it filled, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Yep. That makes sense. Let's take a minute, if you have the time, to talk about NFT NYC because I jumped this over the discussion. You were with your team at NFT NYC, not only to present a booth, but also as a sponsor. Do you want to take a minute to talk about this experience? Yeah. So we did sponsor NFT NYC. And actually, the real reason for that was we wanted to see how people would react to our idea in real life, in person, off the internet, right? And it was a bit of an experiment for me. Because we've obviously invested a lot of time, money, effort, love, energy into what we're building. And I was like, I'm really curious to see how the people... My understanding of NFT NYC is like people who are really in the space, they're paying a lot of money to be there. So they must be serious about being in the space. So 
I wanted to see what the reaction would be. So Blam and I, and I didn't get to touch on all of the team members, but that's okay. We have some other excellent team members that Mike Roscoe and actually our two devs, whose names I can't say because I would dox them. They're great partners of ours, very important in what we're doing, but literally just as important as what Blam and I do. We're all working together every single day, full time. And the NFT NYC. So Blam and I designed this booth and Lion and I went to New York to present there. And we actually brought one of the voice actresses whose name is Juliet. Yeah, we brought her with us. And who is a very famous Instagrammer, right? Yeah, Instagram and TikToker. And she actually found the show and befriended us. And then I was like, hey, do you want to come to New York with us for the week? We'll get you a hotel. And she was like, yeah, I would love to, right? And she was there as the character, basically. And we had merchandise. I mean, one of the things that we're doing is I have physical merchandise. I obviously have a product background as well, right? Because I was building brands. We had physical merchandise. We had prizes. We had an interactive display. Like, we had a lot of cool stuff going on. And I just designed this booth from my position of like, okay, you know, we're not the biggest sponsor at this event, but how do I bring everything I do? I like to do differently. And I like to bring my A game. And most of my A game just comes from my imagination. <laughs> Honestly, like, I'm like, well, how do I imagine this? How do I put this together with the limited space we have? And I put it together. We show up at NFT NYC. Within two hours of the event starting, I knew that we had the best thing in the whole place. For sure. Yeah, like it was, there was sure no contest. There's an article uh, on uh, Forbes about your presence in NFT NYC. And something I, I saw about during all the events, it was two or three days, as far as I remember. Yeah, it was three. During yeah. all these events, you kept all day long a very strong interaction with the community. I don't remember the name of the game with the balls, huh? But, uh, gotcha, uh, gotcha. It's called Gotcha Pond. Yeah. Yeah, the Gotcha Pond. And during all the events, you offered the chance for the community to win some goodies, especially you had this pair of uh, Nike shoes. It was Nike shoes on the uh, Moom design. All the events, the relation uh, with the community, with the people who couldn't be there. And that's. Yeah, that's... I wanted to make sure the people who couldn't go there still in, got to feel connected to what we were doing. Yes, that was a strong connection because I felt like I, I, somehow I was there too. Oh, that's awesome, man. Thank you. Do you want to talk a little bit because it's very late now and um, you told me you you haven't lots of time. Do, do you want to, to talk a little about the Mint is this summer? Yeah, the Mint is this summer. I cannot say when the Mint is because there's a really large thing that's going to be announced surrounding the Mint but I can't say when the mint is because this thing is quite large and there are a little bit moving parts to it that have to be sorted out before then, but it will definitely be this summer. Okay. Feel like free to show it. It's probably the most bullish piece of news that there could be. So. Okay. If you want to talk about this, feel free. Ordinals on the trends those days. Do you, which blockchain did you choose for the mint? Ethereum. Ethereum, nice. I don't like to follow trends. Like if everyone else is going to the right, usually you should be going to the left. If everyone else is going to the left, you should be going to the right, I think. <laughs> As rebels and resistance members, I kind of feel that's the way to go. Yeah, so I just wanted to keep it on Ethereum. Now, I do admit that gas fees are a serious area of concern for me, not relating to the Mint, but just in general relating to Ethereum. And... 
part of what we're doing is, I'm not sure if you know this, Ozzy, but our PFPs are dynamic PFPs, which means you'll be able to change them over time. That's a question I wanted to ask you, yeah. How uh, those NFT will look like? Will you have some legendaries? We will, yeah. We've got a really good spread of traits and colors and different things. And there's even hidden utility beyond just the PFP, which will start to become known soon. Okay, so you cannot talk about the utility. That's the question I wanted to ask you, actually. Yeah, so in a couple weeks' time. Okay. I can tell you this about the PFPs. They're dynamic. The PFP that you mint can be changed later. And how you do that is interesting experience in itself. We've referred to something called the minting experience in the past, but we've never explained what it is. And you'll gain an understanding when you see the minting experience. So before anyone goes to mint, they'll be pretty clear on what we're talking about. What kind of argument would you say to someone who would hesitate to mint your project? What would their hesitation be? If you give me a hesitation, I can give you what I would say. Oh, that would be about your utility, but we'll know in a couple of weeks. So yeah, my question doesn't make sense. Well, no, let's say someone was, was wondering, here, if I were to tell you, how about this, why you should mint our project instead of, here's the thing. If you take a look at what we've done and how hard we've worked to bring things to life that are useful, knowing that we've done that without asking for anyone's money, the money that we'll gain from your trust in us is going to allow us to 100x what we're doing. It's going to help us 100x what we're doing. And I would say, if you speak to anybody in our community and if you speak to me directly, we want to earn people's trust. It's very important to me. And trust is hard to earn and easy to break. But <laughs> if you were to consider minting any other NFT and... I don't know why you wouldn't want to mint we have to offer because we've already proven, in my opinion, that we're here for the long run. We care about the community. And I'm not thinking about just mint. Mint is just chapter one. It might not even be the first chapter. It could be like the pretext to the entire chapter. So I would say if you want a project that is definitively going to have good utility that you will see very soon and you want a team that's gonna care about you and wake up and work hard every day, and a team that also isn't going to get excited by millions of dollars, meaning that's not our motivation. The money will follow and we're the best thing in the world. And that's why I would tell you to mint. And if you love the story, if you wanna be part of something great, that's why you should mint because- That would be the reason for me. It's uh, being part of a um, field that I would be part of an exciting story because uh, it's exciting. And uh, yeah, that's something I wanted to tell in the introduction. Your project delivered lots of things so far. You already have an app, even before the, the mint, the series, nine episodes so far. That's a lot of things you delivered already. So how do you see Web3 in the next five years? Because, you know, every two or three months, people say it in media, the cryptos are over, Web3 down. It's not going to get up anymore. Mm. Are you optimistic about Web3? Am I optimistic about Web3? I'm optimistic about decentralization. I'm optimistic about self-custody of your finances. I'm optimistic about digital ownership of items and assigning value to digital items. 
I'm optimistic about the technologies of Web3 and the applicable use cases of it moving forward. Do I think, and this is going to sound weird to some people, but honest questions deserve an honest answer. I don't think we're going to see the same level, let's call it floor price action as we saw on Board Ape Yacht Club, for example. I don't think, I'm not saying that our project won't have a strong floor price, that it won't raise. I'm just saying, I don't think that that's the foremost, like that may have been a moment in time that was because of newness, right? I think that we're going to see lucrative opportunities. I don't know if it'll be as explosive. I think that over time, everything kind of regulates, right? Everything finds its correct market fit. And I think that there are going to be great innovators who do great things with this technology. And I think that the investors, the the people that buy the NFTs, the people that are believing in projects, I think there's going to be upside for them absolutely. But I do think that the space has to push itself to do better, a lot better. Because I look at some of these projects that have had tens of millions of dollars gone through them, right? I'm not going to name names. And I can't help but sit there and go, as somebody that's ran multiple businesses, what the hell are these people really doing? And what the hell have they really delivered? I mean, if you look at what we've delivered as a company that has had zero dollars from, <laughs> we haven't sold an NFT yet, look what yeah. I can do with zero. And then imagine what I could do with 10 million. And then I look at those people who have had millions and I go, but what did you guys do? Yeah, and That's a problem. Yeah, of course, of course. I think it's about for Web3 to have a future, there needs to be better founders, first of all. There needs to be bigger visions and the things that worked in 2021 probably aren't going to be the things that work in the next bull run or the next moment that this technology has its moment in time, right? Right. There will, in the next couple of years, be more Web3 application in real life, in our daily life. I do think so. Yes. But I think sure. that the concept of every person and their brother making 90 ETH trading a JPEG is not a concept that you can hang your hat on. I don't think. Yes, the value of NFT should be the the application it gives. Correct. Um, yeah. Where do you see your project move in the next five years? In the next five years, I see us being the company that was able to do the things I just described. I see us being the company that has figured out the link between normalizing Web3 interacting with web three in a way that you're not even like, we're not going to be calling it web three. There will be millions of people who are customers who use the utility, who use the applications. And we're not going to be calling it web three, web three and its technologies will be natively embedded in something. And they'll be, they'll be the facilitator, but we're not going to sit there and call it web three. We're probably not even going to sit there and call it non-fungible tokens. I see us as being a brand that is in every area of media, be it audio, video, physical product. I see there being physical spaces that are physical experience spaces. I see it and digital experience spaces. I see it across the board like that. I look at some of the great brands of our time and I'm going to use, I'm not saying we're the next Pokemon. I'm not going to say that, but I want to use Pokemon as an example. When I ask people, have you ever owned a Pokemon product in any form? doesn't matter what it is, whether it was a trading card, whether it was a stuffed animal, whether it was a toy, whether it was a, a Happy Meal, you got a McDonald's, whatever it was, whether you saw a movie, whether you watched a show. I just realized I have a bunch at home. Exactly. Almost Pokemon. everyone has had that product in some form, right? It's actually the most successful intellectual property of all time. More than 
Marvel, more than Star Wars, it's Pokemon. And Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting because even people who don't like anime and even people who don't like video games and even people who don't like trading card games have had it. Yeah, I have to admit that I love the video game. Me too, but there's something for everyone, right? And I think that's the Yeah, point. for sure, yeah. It might be one of the only brands that I'm aware of. Maybe Marvel comes close just because of how big it is as a movie presence, but it may be one of the only brands that's ever successfully done that. And I want to be the next brand that successfully does that, but I want to do it in a way where we use decentralization and the power of the brilliant minds all around the world to do it. That's all I wish. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you so much for discussion geographic. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Ozzy. And thank you to everybody on your team. Um, I'm happy to be here. And it really means a lot to me that you are so connected to the story and everything that we're doing and everything that we're building. You've been a really big supporter of us from probably the earliest times of the episode. I say this to you and I say this to anybody that listens to what we're doing or comes into interaction with what we're doing. That's the thing that motivates us to do it. And Whenever there's a place that we can get someone involved, our biggest priority is to figure out how we build that global brand with you. So thanks for having me on your show. Thank you for coming. That was great. Thank you, Jill. Yeah, thank you. Bye. See you soon. For sure, yeah.